All right, so today we're continuing our study through the book of Acts, and today uh, Acts chapter 2, probably the most famous scene story from the book of Acts, the story of Pentecost. So we're going to work our way through that today. There's a lot to say about it, but I wanted to start with just a, a simple question. When I was a kid, we used to have this jingle. I don't know if they still say it, but you, you know this one? Make new friends, but keep the old. You guys know this? One is silver and the other's gold. Some of you know it. You're saying Girl Scouts? Oh, okay. Um, what is this rhyme telling us? What is it trying to, to convey with that little jingle? Make new friends, but keep the old. One is silver and the other's gold. What is, what is that saying? That we should be ranking our friends? We need a podium? Gold, silver, bronze? You know, you're really one of my bronze friends. Um, what's, it try, what's it trying to, to convey there? Okay, we need people around us that we can interact with. True. We should keep getting more friends, not just staying with one. Okay, keep getting more friends, not just staying with the uh, the other friends. Um, what which ones are silver and which ones are gold? Are we supposed to even figure that out? No. They're both valuable. They're both valuable. Exactly. <laughs> I think that the point here is not the, the ranking, you didn't quite make the podium, you're, pretty, you're an honorable mention friend, um, but it's that both are valuable, both uh, new friends, old friends, something to offer in terms of our relationships, and uh, we need them both. Um, we are going to be looking at, with the story of Pentecost, the way God keeps and modifies, almost reimagines, reinvents the old even as he is uh, continually adopting and um, new things as well. This is quite evident in the story of, of Pentecost. So let's just get after it. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2, um, let's start with verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. What does that make you think of from last week? Homothumadon. Homothumadon all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right, so a lot here, right, in just these first few verses. Let's back up and remember what the context was. Jesus had told them at his ascension, which came how many days after his resurrection? 40. 40 days. 40 days after his resurrection, right at the time of his ascension, he tells them, wait here in Jerusalem when power from on high is going to come upon you. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. Now it's happening. How much later is that? 10 days. Okay. It's been 10 days. What's interesting in this first verse, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. That's the way my translation has it. What it says literally in the, in the Greek there is that when the fullness of days had come, then the Holy, they were all together in one place. The fullness of days. Yeah, go ahead, man. That's kind of what I was wondering. Pentecost was not like an officially recognized holiday or something. Right. Point, right? Well, so. yes and no. So I'll get, get after that in just a, just a moment. Um, so here we are, the fullness of days. And for uh, Luke, this is a very pregnant phrase, pardon the pun. 
Uh, and it, he uses it in a couple of significant places, different junctures, going back to at the beginning of his first uh, part of his opus here in Luke chapter 2, says, while they, referring to Mary and Joseph, while they were there, the time came, literally the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. Now, Luke is using very similar language to speak of what? The birth of the church. That as the the time was fulfilled, the days were fulfilled for the, the coming of the Savior. Now that time is fulfilled for the coming of the church to come into creation through the work of the Holy Spirit. That same language of fullness is also there in Galatians 4. Paul talks about when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That fullness now is realized in the church. The time for the church's birth has come. But uh, Matt raises the point, it's kind of strange. They say when the day of Pentecost arrived, Now, how could that be? How did they know that it was going to be the day of Pentecost? Had they already ordered their red pyramids and everything? They knew, okay, this is going to be the day of Pentecost. Yeah, Leslie. 50 days after Passover? 50 days after the Passover. Okay. So this is uh, already, this was an established feast in the Old Testament. Now, Pentecost is not Hebrew. You can tell it doesn't, it doesn't sound Hebrew. Um, that comes from instead the, is it the Latin or the Greek? Yes. I can't remember. What, I think it's the Greek. Um, I should know that. But. Because tent in Latin is sick. Yeah, there you go. That's right. So it's, it's Greek. So this was a, a, the Greek term that had been adapted for what the Hebrew feast was known as Shavuot. Let me hear you say Shavuot. Shavuot. Yep. Shavuot it. And, uh, Sorry. This was a festival going back to the Old Testament. We've got the reference here for you from Deuteronomy 16. It's also in Leviticus 23 and other places. It says, you shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, who are, what's that? Okay, is there a sneeze? Uh, (laughs) And the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Okay, thus the feast of Shavuot, which just means from Shabbat, means the feast of weeks, okay? Um, seven weeks, seven weeks after the Passover, plus uh, the, the day. So seven weeks would be 49 days plus one, the day itself, 50 days. Now, what's significant about that number seven? You know that this is an important number in the scriptures, and in particular in the, the Old Testament, it's, that num- it's the number of days in a week, um, and to have, it's uh, uh, the number of fullness, right? And so to have seven sevens, this is the fullness of time itself. To have that number 50 was very symbolic. It shows up in another place in the Old Testament, another festival. Anybody know this? This is kind of pretty deep biblical trivia at this point. But you ever heard of the festival of the Jubilee? Um, So every seventh year, they would have a Sabbath year. This is in uh, Deuteronomy 15. It outlines this right before um, the reading here. And then after a Sabbath of Sabbaths, seven times seven, 
Then that 50th year was the Jubilee, and I heard somebody mention it. Carla, did you say? Yeah, all debts were forgiven, land went back to its original owner. Debts were forgiven, land went back to its original owner. And so the Jubilee itself became kind of this uh, symbol of God's redeeming work. Yeah, Ann? Which land? Yeah, so like if your family, I've been reading the story of, of Joseph right now and um, in the Old Testament Joseph, and there's this moment where the, the famine is sweeping the land of Egypt and people basically put their land in hock to uh, the Pharaoh, right? And they, they give it over to Pharaoh just so they can have food. This sort of thing was very common. You know, nowadays you go bankrupt and, you know, your, your credit gets ruined, something like that. In the ancient world, your land gets repoed, right? We're just, we're going to take that. Um, but in a jubilee year, it goes back to the original, uh, the family that it belonged to. So uh, it's a, a really beautiful testament of, of grace. Yeah, Court. The family that it belonged to was who they were donated, who they were assigned to when they divided up the land between the 12 tribes. So it would, if somebody was poor and there wasn't doing well and it sold it, it would go back to them right. at the 50 years. So when you were selling or leasing out your land, right. you gauged it by, by that. It was just one year to go. Proximity to the, the Jubilee. And we don't really have good historical accounts of how did that affect their dealing and so forth. You can't help but think, that would really give rise to some interesting economic practices, but I, I can't speak to that. Yeah, Ann. Well, if two parties, like if there was a, if you were not desperate to sell your land, yeah, and you sold your land, then it wouldn't come back to you. you just, no, I, I sold that. Right. Exactly. Yes. I mean, you you were able to sell it to transfer the deed and so forth. You would, and then you would have, um, if you wanted it, the kin, the redeemer, right? This is what they would call it. Your kinsman redeemer. Thus, the story of of Ruth and Boaz, etc. Yes, court. I heard this as like a news article. Maybe it was in Yahoo. I don't know. It sounds like it's reputable. Yeah. <laughs> but they were talking since we have, you know, we went many years as, as a country without really having debt. Mm. Uh, Hoover was really opposed right. to going into debt to bring us out of the Depression. Right. Uh, and it's about back then that we went in tremendous debt and now we are buried and they're talking about some mentioned let's have a year of jubilee right now <laughs> hey anybody china what do you think does that sound good to you guys no okay so moving along here then um <clears throat> point being this this was already an established jewish festival and not only that it was one of the three festivals that the people of god were admonished to come to jerusalem to return to jerusalem so if they were part of the diaspora those who had been spread abroad um uh, at the for the feast of weeks for this feast of pentecost will be a time when they would be coming back home sort of like you know with high school or college you have homecoming right this was a homecoming week for um, Jews. And so you've got thousands and thousands of pilgrims that have returned to the home city, right? So there they are. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. This is the breath of the Spirit, of course. Um, but we know uh, 
from Old Testament, New Testament, that the Spirit is associated with wind. I mean, maybe this goes without saying, but that great Hebrew word, ruach, going back to Genesis chapter 2, when God breathed his ruach, his breath, his spirit into the dust, and then the dust became a living being. So this wind of God's breath, his spirit, comes up again and again and again. Perhaps most famously in the New Testament, Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That uh, comparison of the Spirit to the wind. Now it becomes real in Acts chapter 2. Again, the picture in Ezekiel 37 of the dead dry bones. Then uh, the Lord said to Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So here and at Pentecost, we have a story that is in the, the tradition of that creation narrative from Genesis 2, God creating by means of his breath, a story from Ezekiel 37, the dead dry bones suddenly being brought to life, and now here in Acts chapter 2, God's breath, that mighty rushing wind coming into the room along with the disciples as they are gathered there. Okay? But not just that. And also then verse 3, divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this divided tongues as of fire, what do you picture? What does that mean? Tongues of fire. Goodness gracious, great tongues of fire. Like, what, do you, what do you picture when you see a tongue of fire? Do you, have, do you have in your mind's eye? I mean, here's what I, here's what I imagine. You tell me if this is kind of what you... That's not bad, actually. Um, the newborn is... Thank you, uh, Court and Leslie. They put this together for us this week. It's nice and clean. It'll stay that way for, you know, a couple more minutes. But, um, you know, this is kind of the, the picture, the tongues of fire. But, of course, Luke means it. And, go ahead, Tom. It could also be like... Imagine yourself in the midst of the northern lights. Oh, sure, yeah. Just illumination. Yeah, just that uh, illumination. And for Luke to say tongues of fire, I think it not only conjures up those images, but he's also hinting at what's about to happen, right? They're tongues of fire that come upon them, and what do the people start doing? Speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues. Mm. All right, Pastor, let's talk about this. Oh, Matt, go I don't stop. know if this goes in another direction, but when I read about it saying tongues of fire that separated yeah a snake tongue is oh like a forked like a forked tongue of fire i don't fire. know if that has to do with any pentecostal type sure. religions and snakes and well, that's a wow that's an interesting question so you get what the connection matt's making here so with us you know a snake tongue is a, a forked tongue or a separated tongue so if we can connect some dots here, there's the one dot of the separated tongue and the serpent, but then there's some Pentecostal or charismatic denominations talking about nowadays that they're, one of the things that they're most famous for is 
handling snakes. I have no idea if there's a connection there, but that's an interesting thought. <laughs> so the, um, this fire comes down on them, and just to mention in passing, this is a, has a long uh, tradition, right? Number, number five on your handout, fire falls when God comes down. So this is calling to mind. You think of Exodus 3, Moses there before the burning bush that was burning but did not, was not consumed. Or again, Exodus chapter um, 19, when all the people of God are gathered together at the foot of Mount Sinai, um, and all the people in the camp trembled. Verse 17, it says, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, I should mention this before we get to the tongues thing, is there was also a tradition among Jews that uh, Mount Sinai, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, also happened on the day that would come to be Pentecost. And so this was a um, kind of a sub-celebration or commemoration along with the, the annual celebration of the Pentecost was a reminder, commemoration of the giving of the law. That if they had to put a date on it, that's the date that they gave to it. So there might be that in the background here too of the fire coming down. It evokes the fire that surrounded Mount Sinai as God came down once before in the law. Yeah, Becky. Is this related to denominations who require like not just baptism by water but baptism by fire right what in the world do they or baptism in the spirit okay yes right um so your question is is this related to or is this where they would point to Mm -hmm. and the answer is yes um that i mean and it goes back to um you know things that um, jesus says in the gospels and then acts chapter 1 verse 5 for john baptized with water but you will be baptized with the holy spirit not many days from now and what do they do like right now, how do they know if someone has been baptized by fire or whatever? Or, yeah, or by the Spirit? Well, I mean, yeah. the answer is simple. They speak in tongues. They speak in tongues. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is for, um, I, just a second. So for, for modern day um, uh, Pentecostals, charismatic Christians, um, the speaking in tongues is essentially elevated to a place of what we might call um, one of the, the marks of the church or the marks of, of a true Christian. Um, so, I mean, traditionally, we'd say it's those who are baptized and, and believe, right? And uh, it says in the Augsburg Confession, the church is wherever the gospel is proclaimed and the sacraments are administered, okay? Um, but with modern Pentecostalism, and you should know too, that Pentecostalism as we know it today is hardly more than a century old. Um, it's usually um, dated back to the um, Azusa, my spelling's right there. Uh, maybe I got those backwards. Azusa uh, Street Revival in, uh, at the, I think it was around the turn of the last century. Is that the second grade? No, that would be the third one, I guess, third right? One. Yeah. Um, so that was essentially the birth of the modern Pentecostal movement, where then this gift of tongues and baptism of the Spirit took on this great prominence. And did you? No, okay. Um, so, okay, so this is, oh, Sally, you had your hand up. Go ahead. I was just thinking about your sermon this morning. Thank you. <laughs> and you were 
talking about the apostles being just ordinary men being right. called. Yes. And then here they had a major transformation. Yes. Um, baptized with fire, you know, and God transformed them for the mission that they had ahead. It's true. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things, we'll see it as we continue through the book of Acts, um, just to stick with Peter, he's the easiest case. Peter, as we see him, where we leave him with the, in, the, in the Gospels, is essentially a cowardly guy that uh, disowns Jesus. But then in the book of Acts, and following the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, we see a man filled with, with boldness and confidence, proclaiming the deeds of the Lord. So that transformation, we really see the work of the Spirit is doing in, somebody, in his life. I was thinking when, during your sermon, when Jesus chose the, these particular men, did he see some characteristic in them? Or, but this makes me think that they were just ordinary men and he transformed them into... Yeah. Well, you know, it's like, did Jesus kind of have this idea, like, I want to call them... Fishers of men, bingo. He's like, all right, I just got to go get some fishers, I guess. You know, um, I think that, if anything, it's akin to, as we've talked in recent weeks, of the way that God works when, like with Gideon, and I want, I want the simpletons, and I only want a handful of them, right? That here the Lord is going to go to the essence of just kind of blue-collar, gruff guys. And this is the, exactly the point that's made, um, getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but um, ahead in Acts chapter 4, I believe it is, um, where the, they're speaking out, they're speaking confidently of what, who Christ is and what he has done. And um, after they do that, the, the leaders, um, I'm looking for where it is, um, they're just kind of taken aback by all this, that they were, they were unschooled, simple men. I can't find the exact reference here. Of, um, of what chapter? 413. 413. Now, saw the yes. of Peter and John realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. Yep. They were astonished. And read that next sentence. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Ah. <laughs> they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They were uneducated, common people. So I think, if anything, it's a uh, it, 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 what made them fit to be his disciples is their lack of fitness. Yeah. Uh, which which winter? I'll let you guys do an arm wrestle to decide which one. Okay, go ahead, Court. Uh, didn't Jesus say when they were entering in, on Palm Sunday, he said, "If I needed people to praise me, I could rise up these stones." That's right. Then the, stones, then the stones would cry out. That's right. The kingdom of God comes, indeed, without our prayers. Um, but we pray that it would be among us. God can do it. He doesn't need us, but he invites us to be part of it. Yeah, we Leslie. Yeah, we need him, exactly. Uh, two things. Uh, and the thing from Exodus there, where God comes down on the mountain, mm-hmm. and people are all afraid, and following that, they say, we can't talk to God. That's right. We want to see God. That's you know, right. You know, you yes. take it. We're, and now, God comes down again. Bingo. Yep. And there they are. And now that fire inhabits the breast of every one of his followers. Right. And it gives them that kind of boldness and confidence so that, like it says in Hebrews, now we can draw near to the throne of grace because of what Christ has done for us, because we are those who are filled with the, the Holy Spirit. With boldness and confidence, we're able to come before him 
or again, connecting to the Lord's Prayer, the Catechism on the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, what does this mean? That we could, with all boldness and confidence, um, come before the Father as to your children. Ask their Father. Yeah, Anne. I, I mean this partially, uh, seriously and partially in jest. Okay. But going back to last Sunday when we talked about the criteria for... Um, yes, apostles. The apostles. Could the fact that the Lord chooses... You know, the, um, what is more feeble? Yeah. Could that be part of the reasoning for choosing men? Yeah. I mean, they don't, they don't lift that. F- <laughs> well played. Well played. <laughs> They're not vigorous like the midwives of Exodus. We'll just leave it at that. That's an interesting thought. Yes, Chuck. So is the term baptism by fire, I interpret that when, when folks use that now in yeah. secular language, it's like, you know, you're, you know, you're going to learn through experience right. that's coming in awfully quickly that yep. is you're not prepared for. Right, right. Is that essentially what's happening to these people in right. Pentecost? Is like they're not prepared, they have no idea what's, what's, what's going on all of a sudden. There's a tongue of fire in their head and different, different languages. I mean, uh, yeah, right. I think yes and no. I mean, um, so there, there's definitely an element of that where they are going to be sent out straight away. And I mean, their whole, uh, what's the expression? It's all been OJT. You know, it's all been on-the-job training for them. Um, they never got sent away to seminary or anything like that. They've just had to learn as they go. So in the sense, their whole life together with Christ has been a baptism by fire. Um, and now, if anything, it's really validating the work that has already begun in them through the power of God's word. So I think there's a little bit of, of both sides of that. Okay, Esther, I'll do one more. Go ahead. Um, just on the other side of that, you know, uh, God also chooses the wise and the educated. It's true. St. Paul. Yes. But, uh, you know, in, in Peter and case, he had to learn to be bold. Yeah. In Paul's case, he had to learn to be humble. Had to learn to be humble. So it goes both ways. That's a great point, that it's not that uh, the gospel didn't come to those who were educated or to those who were from the upper crusts of society. In fact, if that hadn't been the case, you think of the disciple Joseph of Arimathea, right, yeah. who uh, was a wealthy man, and he was able to purchase the tomb for Jesus. Turns out it was a short rental. Um, but he, you know, the, the church has always relied on people of means and pe- people of knowledge. So it's not to um, disregard that or, you know, degrade that by any means. But it's, it's more like if Jesus can call these people, how much more can he also um, call those from other walks of life? So, all right, but l- let's continue on here because there's some important things to, to point out. So they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. It says they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, one of the misunderstandings with this, and this is often pointed out um, in, in response to especially some of the more strident um, rhetoric of uh, Pentecostals when they really stress, okay, you need, you need these tongues, is it's clear both from the, the Greek word, which is glossa, like glossary, okay, um, <clears throat> as well as from the context here, that when they are speaking in other tongues... Well, let's continue. Verse 5. Now they were dwelling... See? While they were dwelling in Jerusalem... Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. By the way, this is, you always get an A plus if you are the reader for Pentecost Sunday, right? Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Okay, um, so when it talks about these tongues that they were speaking in, what does that mean? What are these tongues? Is it just some kind of gibberish? That have, it's different languages. Different languages. So it's not that it's some kind of, um, you know, just unintelligible heavenly speech here. It's that somehow there, it's like at the UN, right? You put on those headphones and then, you know, suddenly you're hearing it. And in fact, I mean, people have pointed out that the United Nations almost had these kind of uh, religious aspirations. On the, the building is a quote from, I believe it's Isaiah 2, about you know, putting the swords in the plowshares and um, so forth. But be that as it may, um, that's kind of the idea. It's now they're hearing it in their own language. And did you notice this? They say, wait, how is it? These guys are Galileans. It's a slight, right? Yeah. It's like uh, when I was growing up in Lake Orion, every, every town has this. Like the other neighboring town that you make fun of. You know, we had Ortonville. We called it Orton Tucky. Um, and it was like, uh, the, oh, if, if they were from Ortonville, well, boy, these are just some simple simpletons, right? They're like 10 miles away from us. Like they're really that different. Um, but these Galileans, they're these simple people. How is it now that they are multilingual? Is it the Rosetta Stone? Like, how, how have they done this? But this, this is the point here, is that it's different languages. Now, then, is there a place or is there a time when there is this kind of heavenly gibberish, for lack of a, a better term there, of this kind of unintelligible speech? In 1 Corinthians 14, you do get the impression, I don't want to go deep into it today, but you do get the impression there that that's, this is what um, Paul's talking about that there was a, a, a kind of prayer language. And I don't mean, I, I guess I'm being a little bit too hard on it. I really don't mean to, um, where I have a problem with this. It's not even with the, the, the so-called gift of tongues per se. Who knows? Maybe some of you have been able to practice that or understand that. It seems to be a, a biblical thing. But my point is twofold. One, it's not a mark of the church. In other words, it, Paul describes it as a gift. A gift does not become suddenly like you have to have this, you have to do this, or you're not a Christian. That's totally undermining the whole nature of, of a gift. That's the first thing to say. The second thing is just to go back to that 1 Corinthians context itself. Paul talks about the gift of tongues, among other things, but then he says, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, now let me show you a more excellent way. Oh, and he goes on with that great chapter on love. And he says, even if I speak in tongues of angels but have not love. So it, really, I guess I just want to say for those who would be the, the most ardent advocates of the gift of speaking in tongues, we just need to pump our brakes a little bit. Say, okay, maybe this has a place, but if anything, it's more of kind of a private devotional sort of practice than anything. All right, there's my soapbox on tongues, but questions about that. Go ahead, Leslie. Uh, at, 
on verse 1, it says, all of them were gathered. Is there any conjecture of how, how many all of them were that were actually speaking right. in tongues? Because sure. we've got all these different languages. And yeah, well, I mean... From what we can gather, uh, the, the time doesn't seem to be so far apart that it's the 120 spoken of in verse 15 from chapter 1. Um, that's what I would presume. I mean, there is a little bit of a time difference, but we're talking, you know, less than a week, right? So um, 120, give or take. Of, of and also, uh, when you're talking about speaking in tongues, somewhere in the Bible, it says, if you have somebody speaking aloud in tongues, right. there has to be somebody there to interpret it. Correct. Yes. So Maybe that's, the, hardest, the hardest job. Right? That's right. I have no idea. <laughs> 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 you know, I mean, like, it'd be easier to speak in tongues than it would be interpreted speaking in tongues. For sure, yes, for sure. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and I mean... You don't need me to tell you. Among Lutherans, this sort of thing is not real common or popular. It's not today. I understand that like in the 70s or 80s, this was a thing that was kind of sweeping through the, the synod, that there was like a kind of a charismatic revival. And there's strains of it in every church body, within Roman Catholics even. Um, so again, my, my goal here is not to cast aspersions on a biblical gift, but just to put it in its proper place. Yeah, go ahead, Jake. Uh, somewhere in the epistles, I think Paul does mention a day when tongues shall cease. Mm. Is uh, that now or is that later? Yeah, is... right. So um, I, I can't think of the exact verse that you're mentioning, but this is, this is a debate um, among Christians as well. Um, there are some who would flat out say that the, the gift of tongues belonged to our particular era of the church. Um, in that early church, and then it just stopped, along with other kind of um, charismatic gifts. Um, and we're just beyond that. Um, and then obviously there's others at the total other end of the spectrum they are like, no, this is really the only sign that the church is still flourishing. Um, as Lutherans, with, as with many things, we take kind of a middle course with that. So what we would say is that the gift of tongues has not necessarily ceased, along with these other gifts, um, but it's not something, like it was, it was, it was sort of like, I'm going to use another bad analogy as I want to do. Um, it's sort of like when you are, this is really bad, but when you sign up for the cable, for cable or whatever, and they give you that great deal to start with, and you're like, whoa, and then suddenly you check your bill one day and it's, it's a lot different. Um, now here's why it's a bad analogy. God doesn't do a bait and switch. But um, there does, on us, but there does seem to be a sense in which, especially on the front edges of the mission, there is more of this, this sort of charismatic gifting, signs and wonders, if you will, accompanying the proclamation of the gospel, and that they tend to dissipate as the, as the gospel takes hold and the life of the church continues. And, I mean, a case can be made, missiologists, that is, people who, who think theologically about missions and so forth, and those in the field and other parts of the world, will talk about this, that you will still see this in parts of the Middle East or in Africa or Asia, where the gospel is really coming into an area in force in a way that it hasn't before, that these giftings will accompany it, but that at some point they'll start to dissipate. So it's like, it's real strong for a while, and then it just tends to kind of fade. And we, we rely upon the more um, conventional or you know, fundamental gifts of God, signs and wonders of word and sacrament. So, so The mistake is that yeah. when they dissipate, to think that faith is, is gone from it. 
That's right. And that's where it usually happens. Is like, well, you, you don't have these marks of the faith between your tongue, yes. then you're not really believing enough, and your faith isn't strong enough. It becomes very guilt-ridden because if you yep. know, I've had staff members at camp, summer staff, who were more Pentecostal, and, right. and they were in, many times in a very deep depression because they had not spoken in tongues yet. Right. And so they were really feeling like God wasn't in their life. I don't feel God. I don't sense God. I don't right. think God's working in me. And yeah, exactly. And this is where it, it really becomes, um, it, it really has the opposite of that original intent or whatever that effect would be where it just undercuts people's faith and their confidence in Christ. That's the last thing that we want to do and it shouldn't be that way. Okay. Good. All right. <clears throat> so the, the gift of the tongues, the languages come, the spirit prompts this new speech. And uh, again, this goes back to uh, a pattern of, of the way God works throughout the scriptures, whether it be Moses saying, you know, God, I just don't speak good. You know, I can't do this job. God says, I'm going to be with your mouth and I am going to be your speech. And we'll let your brother Aaron come along as well. Right. He'll be your professional speech writer. Um, God does this again and again. Jeremiah, same kind of thing. Like, God, I'm too young. Please don't do this. God's like, I'm going to put it into your mouth. Don't worry about it. Jesus says it in Luke 21 and elsewhere. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Side note, <laughs> and my, uh, with my research for my thesis, my doctoral thesis on um, preaching by heart, um, you know, preaching without notes, but as I do it, I hope that you notice this, I'm not just making it up when I get up there in the pulpit, right? Um, it's, you know, it's researched and plotted out and prepared and everything like that. Sure, but there's, sure it is, sure it is right? <laughs> well, but there's different, there's different schools of thought. So at the one, at the one end of the, the spectrum, you've got people who you have to write everything out and just read it straight from a manuscript. Otherwise, it's not a real sermon. But then I discovered at the, at the far other end, you've got folks among Pentecostals and Quakers, actually, who use that verse from Luke as their warrant that when they preach, there cannot be any preparation beforehand. And it would just, it has to be totally just extemporaneous in the moment. Otherwise, it's not a, a legitimate sermon. See? Um, I call that preaching from the hip. <laughs> I actually do this in my thesis. There's preaching, preaching from the page, preaching from the hip. I advocate preaching from the heart. See what I did there? Um, <clears throat> I passed. I passed. That's all you need to know. Yeah, go ahead, Ann. Yeah, I'm just going to brag on you. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Pastor has uh, had an offer from a publishing company to publish his book. Indeed. Um, they're not even going to make him pay to publish it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that, we'll turn that dissertation uh, into a book. I'm really excited about that. Other people uh, will get to read it. So I figure between my mom, maybe some of you guys, you know, I get royalties. So um, <laughs> get copies out there. What's the name of the book? <clears throat> preaching My Heart. Oh. Yeah, Preaching My Heart. So, yep. All right. So um, number seven then, moving along on page three here of the handout. Um, and I, I preached on this on Pentecost. This theme, number seven, says the coming of the Spirit signifies Babel undone. This is really one of the, the big takeaways here. You remember the story of the Tower of Babel when the, the people are building this tower up to heaven and, uh, because they have one language and the same words, it says. 
And so they, they say, all right, let's build a tower up to heaven. And the implication, although they don't say it explicitly, is that we can dethrone God, right? We're, we're going to kick him out. We're going to take over, run this show for ourselves. That memory of the flood still in the back of their minds, that cultural historical memory of, hey, this has happened before. It could happen again. Let's not let that happen. Build a great big tower up to the heavens and take care of things ourselves, right? To which the Lord responds with, eh, not so fast. Um, and sends them out, disperses them over all the face of the, all the earth and confuses their languages, right? And thus, ever after, they Babylon. <laughs> Thank you, I'll be here all week. <laughs> this is why I said that's right. <laughs> the pastor joke is a subset of the dad joke. There's dad jokes and then there's pastor jokes, which are r- real groaners. Um, right, exactly. You have to laugh at your pastor's jokes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You don't have to laugh at dad's jokes. But uh, another passage that um, isn't as familiar from Isaiah 11 says, In that day, Old Testament uses this language, the day, the that one. And, and it's kind of, you know, it's that capital D day, the day of the Lord. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So part of that messianic hope was the ingathering of God's people. So that in Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, you have both of these at work. That recovery of one language, but God using that one language, not that they all just speak the same words, but that now in the midst of their diversity, he brings a unity as they speak the language of faith. See, this is one of the beautiful things about Christianity. Um, we believe in translation. And you, know, you, you think about with um, Islam, for, for instance, and when it comes to Islam, the Quran can, uh, I mean, if you have it in any language other than Arabic, it's not a legitimate Quran. Um, and in fact, faithful Muslims will stay away from that altogether. Gotta learn, speak it in Arabic and read it in Arabic. Whereas Christianity from the beginning has been a faith of translation a God of incarnation who came down and reached down to humanity at our level in our language, right? And he continues to operate that way, not just uh, bowling us over and making us all the same, but in the midst of that diversity, bringing us this deeper unity through the power of the Spirit, through the language of, of faith. So you have that here, along with the gathering together of God's people at Pentecost. It's a beautiful picture. Yeah, Becky. So the whole point is the understanding, right? It's not the talent in the, no, in right. the tongue. Yes. And so the, the unity in faith and the understanding, yeah. it's not the talent, it's the understanding. And this was the confirmation sermon, right? Right, yes. Which makes it, Good. you know, we had these young people coming forward and beginning their understanding and right. coming forward in faith with the congregation. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, the gift of tongues without understanding and edifying of the faith is like somebody who can spin the basketball on their finger but can't ever put it in the hoop. 
like, oh, that's a neat trick, but you're kind of missing the point, right? And if you, you know, you can, and this is what Paul is saying also in 1 Corinthians 13. You can speak in tongues of angels, but if you have not love, then it's, it's the nothing. The whole point is to pass it on to more people. That's right. Who can understand. That's right. And that's what's happening here. Which brings me to uh, number eight on the handout on the back on page four. The church's end is in her beginning. The church's end is in her beginning. Uh, an allusion to T.S. Eliot. Um, and his poem, The Four Quartets. In my beginning is my end. End here in the sense of goal or a purpose. The church's purpose and goal is right there from the beginning. You have it in, in verse 11. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. What's the first thing they start doing? Bearing witness. This is their beginning, and this is our end. This is our goal, to bear witness in word and deed to the love of God made manifest in Christ Jesus and through the giving of the, of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light lovely uh, articulation who we are what we're about in our beginning is our end <clears throat> two last thoughts and uh, we'll probably pick up with these next week but notice this it, i mean um it's been said that the book of acts has more humor than any other book in the in the new testament and i think there's some truth to it i mean I, luke is kind of winking at us um, a few times throughout and we'll we'll see those as we go but one example of that here <laughs> is at the end, uh, verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. And Peter goes on to say, he's like, look, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. I'm not drunk yet, guys. Hey, hey, hey. That's what he says. Um, I don't know if he said the hey, hey, hey part, but. Um, and what this points out for us, they're saying, like good Lutherans, what does this mean? When the people of God are living faithfully and their vocation as witness bearers to the kingdom, it's going to elicit questions from our neighbors that say, what does this mean? And this, again, Peter from chapter 3 of his letter, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Why do you live this way? Why do you have such hope? Our lives call forth that question. What does this mean? One last thing, though, and I don't know that I had thought about this before, but I think this is one of those winks from Luke. He says, no, they are filled with new wine. And he's right, but not in the way that he thought. Think of what Jesus says in Matthew 9. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. We see here this new wine of the Holy Spirit as God transfigures these ancient practices of, of Pentecost, speaking all these different languages, but the Lord 
reclaims and, and reforms those old practices in the new practice of his Holy Spirit. And he's still doing it today. All right, next week we'll look at Peter's sermon at Pentecost, beginning with verse 14. Thank you very much for your participation.